Hello and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast, brought to you from the team behind Cycling Plus, MBUK and BikeRadar.com. Hello there and welcome to the Bike Radar podcast. Uh, we're back with our fortnightly podcast series and there's only two of us this week because everyone's super busy, but I've managed to drag Matthew away from his computer uh, to have a quick chat about, well, the future trends in road cycling. So we're going to get our crystal balls out and have a little think about what's going to be happening in the next few years. Should we start by talking about aerodynamics? Definitely in the world of road cycling, aero is a massive consideration. Obviously, it's the easiest way to go faster without actually making yourself stronger. Uh, We've seen in the last few years, aero bikes have become utterly ubiquitous. It used to be that they were very much like a separate thing, but now aero has very much entered the mainstream and it's pretty much all new race bikes have aero features. It used to be there was quite a delineation. Mm -hmm. There were sort of lightweight bikes on one side and they were purely focused on low weight with no aerodynamic features at all. Your climber's bikes. Yeah, what they would call a climber's bike. So it'd have low profile wheels, probably round tube sections. And then at the other extreme, we started to get full-fledged aero bikes and they had, for example, truncated aerofoil tube cross sections. They tended, if you were buying an expensive one, they'd come with like a really nice deep section rim and it was all about speed. And initially it was all about speed quite often at the cost of comfort and weight, presumably. And weight, yeah. The first generation of aero bikes was generally a good, let's pull a number out of the air, like they might have been half a kilo heavier than okay. a kind of comparable lightweight climber's frame. Mm-hmm. That's all changed now. The lines are much less clearly drawn and we're seeing every new bike come out now has to have aero features because otherwise it's is not that, worthwhile. Is that a because of a fashion thing to some extent, thing, or, or do you think it's because we're sort of realising just how important aerodynamics can be on a bike? I think there's a, there's a few things at work. Um, obviously, in terms of technology, we got to the point with lightweight where we weren't necessarily going to get that much lighter because with enough money, even like you, any amateur could build a bike that was well underneath the UCI weight limit for racing, which is 6.8 kilos. Mm-hmm. And you could buy off the shelf, off the peg, yeah. I don't know what you call it, bikes, um, that were, you know, six kilos or, or less even. Mm-hmm. The, yeah, the UCI weight limit is a big, big thing, and that still exists, mm-hmm. which meant that we reached a point where, for example, pro teams were getting their top-of-the-line frames, so, for example, something like a Cannondale Evo, and they were building it up with all the latest components. They'd have, like, Durace or something, and then it would be so light that they would have to add weight mm-hmm. to it. So they're sticking like a 105 cassette on there, for example. Or, or literally just sticking weights down the seat tube or something. There were people gluing lead into their frames, which mm-hmm. is obviously completely absurd because that weight could be used to gain other, some other sort of performance advantage. I.e. aero. I.e. aero, yeah. And then at the same time as that was happening, there was a ever-increasing awareness of just how much aerodynamics matter. Mm-hmm. Which is to still is still debatable to some extent because aerodynamics have a much greater effect the faster you're going. Well, it's not it's not that there's a cutoff. It's to do with the fact that drag sort of increases as like a square of mm-hmm. speed. So at 15 miles an hour, it might have a bit of an effect. You go up a little bit in speed. You go up a lot in drag terms. Mm-hmm. And if you're a professional rider, where you know like Tour de France averages roughly 25 miles an hour, 40 kilometers an hour. So they're going on average quite fast most of the time. Mm-hmm. You take a p- little percentage off 
in aerodynamic terms, save just a watt here and a watt there, that starts to really make a difference. Over 20-odd days of racing. Yeah, absolutely, and that can really matter. And, you know, the Tour de France has historically been decided on really small time margins yeah. sometimes. So there's it would be crazy for pro teams and, and the bike designers who feed pro teams to be ignoring that. So that's pretty cool then. So the... the Ability to have lighter weights is driving the development, presumably, of better aero bikes that are also more comfortable. Yeah, so the first generation of aero bikes, there were things like the Scott Foil. Mm -hmm. They're really cool bikes. They looked amazing. They tended mm. to be fast, I properly fast. I an aero-looking bike. They look, yeah. they look awesome. They do look really cool. Or something like the when the Canyon Aeroad came out, that's a bike now which doesn't look so outlandish. But when that first launched, it looked like a spaceship mm -hmm. compared to most of the other bikes on the market. And they were great, but they were so focused on aerodynamics, they didn't really have a lot of built-in comfort. Mm -hmm. Whereas the kind of, I guess you might call it the second generation of aero bikes, they started taking all of the lessons that were being learned on regular race bikes and also on endurance bikes, because mm -hmm. there were some really influential bikes like the Track de Mane or various generations of the Specialized Roubaix that really put effort into building in comfort. And they acknowledged that sometimes going fast isn't just about those hard like power arrow mm -hmm. weight just numbers. about the watts it's yeah about... it's like you have to be able to sustain effort and if you're getting battered to bits by your super stiff arrow bike that's going to hurt you in a different way over six hours of race you know, like a you know a super long day in the alps is what six seven hours of racing yeah and especially if you're riding somewhere with slightly rougher roads like tour de france is maybe a bad example because mm -hmm. they tend to get to ride on quite nice roads but if you're riding in the uk if you're racing in the uk mm -hmm. roads are really terrible around here yeah I mean, this sort of then ties into, in, if we're going to look at what's going to happen in the future then, ties into a little bit about our previous podcast, which was about, you know, is N plus one the perfect number of bikes, where we talked about having super versatile bikes. If we're talking about road bikes then, if you've got a bike that is both comfortable and aero and light, does that mean maybe we will see fewer sort of differentiations between road bikes? I think or are we going to keep seeing We're definitely bikes? going that way because the, the very latest generation of bikes... They have aerodynamic features. They have comfort. Like, it's rare to see a new bike get launched now that doesn't have drop seat stays. And that's a really easy way for a bike designer to add comfort because a drop seat stay means that you can get more seat post flex, mm -hmm. which translates to comfort. It's compliance. And then also because that seat stay has dropped down, the rear triangle is smaller and it's easier to make a small triangle stiffer. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of a win-win from a design point of view. And that's why every new bike looks like a BMC from 10 years ago when they were the only ones doing it. Yeah. So again, that's tying into another podcast we did a few months ago. Why do all road bikes look the same? Yeah. Um, in terms of those podcasts which are available, if you're watching this on YouTube, um, don't forget that you can subscribe to the Bike Radar podcast um, on Spotify, iTunes, all the regular places. Hopefully there's a button flashing up somewhere on the screen now. If not... The description of this video will have those links in there. Um, should we move on to the next one then, which is similar to that? So we've been talking about air uh, and comfort and lightweight. Let's talk about comfort. Suspension on road bikes specifically. Yeah, this ties into the same thing because we're at this moment where there's a lot of weird nicheification going on because there's like been massive swing towards gravel bikes and stuff. But people are acknowledging that the old model of what a road bike is isn't necessarily the right one because it used to be the road bike was a very narrowly defined thing, had super, super skinny tyres, mm -hmm. tiny clearances, and that was a bike that was good in a kind of idealised world of very, very smooth tarmac and, like, old-school racing, 
but actually there might be other ways to go faster, mm -hmm. whether that's that error stuff or suspension, because in the real world, roads are not smooth. Yeah. And we tend to think, like when, I'd say when the Demani came out, people were like, it's an amazing way to add comfort to a bike. Mm -hmm. the, for those that don't know the track, Demani had a ISO, what's called an ISO speed decoupler, which essentially meant that the seat tube could move independently of the frame. By a small amount. Yeah, by quite a small amount. With, I can't remember what it was, like you know, 15 mil. millimeters yeah. or something, um, but enough to add a real meaningful amount of comfort. And the latest generation has a similar thing added at the front as well. But that was always viewed kind of as a comfort-focused thing explicitly, mm -hmm. whereas when we talk about cars, for example, suspension isn't just about comfort. It's about keeping your tyres on the ground at all times. For grip and control. It's for grip and control, and that ultimately leads to speed as well. Mm -hmm. Because if you're on the ground putting down power, you're going to be able to sustain speed in a way that you can't otherwise. So yeah, it's <laughs> we're we're at a really interesting moment. Um, I mean, who, who who's if we if we're looking at the brands which have suspension coming out, and we'll talk about the gravel side of things. Obviously, that's going to be a massive topic in terms of the future of road cycling gravel. But in terms of the road bikes that are out there, bikes that are sort of designed for those spring classics, you know, the cobbles in Flanders and Belgium and all that sort of jazz. You know, Pinarello have got something with a little air shock at the back. You've got Specialized with their Future Shock. Um, suspension through the head tube stem yeah. arrangement. Is that what we're going to expect to go and see, or are we going to see more sort of compliance, do you think, like the GT grade, for example, with its flexible back end? Or It's really hard to say. So this is relevant to what I've been riding a Specialized Roubaix recently with the Future Shock, mm -hmm. um, which is a cartridge in the headset, mm -hmm. which effectively means that the bars can move up and down. But and not the rest of the bike. No, although if you think about it, they're moving relative to each other. So depending on sort of yeah. where our mass is distributed, it's not as though the bars simply bounce up and down on the bike. Mm -hmm. In reality, what it means is the wheel can effectively move relative to the rider, and that's what matters. Mm -hmm. And so far, I've been riding this few weeks, I've been incredibly impressed by how effective this is because unlike a suspension system on a mountain bike, which uses telescoping forks mm -hmm. where there's a lot of friction, this little cartridge setup, has none. Really? There's very, there's no perceptible friction. In it. Okay. I'm I'm very light, mm -hmm. and I find that conventional mountain bike suspension isn't really optimised for people like push. me. Yeah. yeah, but particularly because I'm always at the extreme end of adjustment on a mountain bike fork or on a shock. Mm -hmm. Whereas this is really really sensitive. It's very short travel, mm -hmm. and interestingly, you don't notice it moving particularly in terms of how it feels. But I can be riding along a sort of rutted road. And it, it just feels like nice and smooth. And then you look down and you can see the little rubber cover on the mm -hmm. shock is moving constantly. So it is doing it. Yeah. It's very subtle. Is it is it um combined with anything towards the back of the bike then for comfort rounding? So it, it has some flex it has a very flexible seat tube design. Right, okay. And I think they've done a really good job actually in that case of matching the two because obviously mm -hmm. they're two very different approaches to adding flex, but it seems to it's work absolutely. really well. That's the one thing I've noticed about the I know I sort of mentioned it a few times in podcasts, but the Lauf is the 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 one sort of drop bar bike I've ridden with suspension for uh, you know long distances that you notice just how good the front end feels because you know you, the front wheel is stuck to the floor, it's comfortable, there's plenty of control, and it just highlights the back wheel isn't suspended. 
Yeah. And it highlights that jittery nature, the discomfort that you get through, which I think if you had a rigid front and rigid back, you maybe wouldn't notice so much. Yeah, that's true. I know that was a big criticism of the original Demani as well, the mm -hmm. opposite, because the original Demani only had the rear ISO speed and the front end was totally conventional. And people always said that that made the front end feel, feel harsh. And it wasn't that it was harsh, it was just that contrast. Um, it just so happens it was specialised with the new Roubaix, seemed to have done a particularly good mm -hmm. job, but there's... It is very bike dependent. I don't think there's a kind of, there's not a right way and a wrong way mm -hmm. with that. But the interesting thing, as well as it being very sensitive with the Roubaix, is I haven't found that there's any particular compromise to it. So okay. you can crank quite hard on the bars and you're mm -hmm. not feeling them moving around. I did, I rode the bike in Italy when I was on holiday. I was doing some really like high speed descents with a bunch of mm -hmm. hairpins. Each coming into each hairpin, you'd be hard on the brakes and then healing it over. It's not diving it, or anything. Yeah, or? there's none of there's no dive. There was no like clunk as you bottomed it out. I was really really impressed. Okay. So I think that's really interesting, and it. I came away from that holiday feeling like, why don't all my bikes have yeah. this? The one thing which um, sort of I think about when I think about you know the future shock or that little air shock on the back of the Pinarello is that it's a. On a mountain bike, you expect suspension. You know, there's a lot of things that sort of, you know, you've got a rear shock, you've got a fork, and there's a service interval for those. And you expect that that's part of the owning experience of a mountain bike is that there's maintenance yeah. to do. For me, maybe it's because I don't ride on the road a huge amount, but it's, for me, like a road bike is literally something I can pull out the garage every day of the week, and it just works fine. And some of the suspension systems where it's, you know, either flexible stays or a leaf spring or something like that. I mean, they're maintenance-free. Mm. For me, the added complication maybe of having a cartridge-based suspension system on a road bike almost detracts from that pure, like, it's just a bike you can pick out and go ride. Is that, do you think that's the case? I think that's a really valid concern. Um, and it's such a new thing that mm. we don't really know long-term what that ownership experience is like. Mm -hmm. um, there are always going to be people that don't want that complexity, I think. And also, we do have to remember, like, we're in the privileged position of trying these things out. Mm -hmm. A lot of people are probably very happy with their conventional road bikes because there are loads of really, really great road bikes that don't have any suspension tech built into yeah. them. And they're still an absolute joy to ride. We don't want to detract from that at mm -hmm. all. But I, I think, forwards. yeah, looking forward, I think there's real potential there okay. for just enhancing your overall ride experience. And maybe also for the pros. Because as we say, it's yeah. suspended, it could be faster. Even if, you know, like the traditionalists might think, oh, you know. Yeah, I mean, Paris-Roubaix is always the thing that people cite for this. That's what the bike, the Specialized Roubaix is named after. It's it's always been funny, the sort of what pros were willing to put up with mm -hmm. in that race, because traditionally they didn't ride that big tyres. It's only relatively recently that pros routinely seen with like 30 mil mm -hmm. tyres at Paris-Roubaix. There were some people used to ride cross bikes at it, but a lot of them were essentially just riding a road bike and they'd like double wrap their bar tape yeah. and stuff, which is quite a token thing when you're faced with these horrible cobbles that are really uncomfortable to ride on. And so if those guys could actually go faster mm -hmm. and not be battered to bits, because Paris-Roubaix, like they talk, they talk about this terrible race, it's called the Hell of the North. If you rode a mountain bike on the Paris-Roubaix right. course, you'd be fine. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it'd be absolutely fine. You'd just you'd get around the whole thing and you'd be like, well, that was easy. Yeah. Obviously, you wouldn't do that because the mountain bike's too heavy. But if you could get a little bit of that, yeah. that mountain bike suspension goodness, why wouldn't you? Well, that ties in nicely then to 
I think we'll rattle through the next couple. We've got a few more things we want to talk about as the future of road, bike, road bikes. Gravel bikes has to be something that we have to at least touch on because the past couple of years have seen an absolute explosion in the popularity of gravel bikes. At least that's the perception because every brand has got gravel bikes. There are gravel-specific products coming out on a weekly basis. I ride gravel. Like I, I would say that if you did a proportion of my drop bar rides, I would say 95% of them are gravel rides. But I don't know if I'm that representative. Do Are we going to sort of see a continuation in the growth of gravel riding, both with what the industry is providing us, but also do you think riders are riding gravel and they're going to continue to do so more? It's quite a few questions, Tom. It's quite a few. I, I come from this from both sides because on the one hand, like, People are always saying, our oh, gravel's a marketing thing. Mm. There is one sense in which that's true, because it used to be that bikes, a lot of people would buy something that was kind of vaguely a cyclocross bike, and mm. they'd use it as a commuter and a winter bike and stuff. And it, now, the £1,000 bikes with disc brakes and big clearances that people are buying, they're not called cross bikes anymore. They're, just, they're called gravel bikes. Mm. But fundamentally, those bikes haven't really changed very much. At the same time, there is this whole growing thing of actual gravel events, yeah. gravel racing or, or like gravel fondos or sportives or whatever you want to call it. So that that is a new thing. I do think people are doing it. Mm-hmm. Couldn't say how many. Yeah. But it is definitely a real thing. And I'm really, really pleased that a kind of a more practical approach to cycling is flourishing. Yeah. Because that is something that we all benefit from if it means that these more versatile bikes are available to us. Mm-hmm. Because it used to be that there were very few nice road bikes, for example, that you could put mud guards on. Mm-hmm. But the sort of gravel influence has meant that you're getting carbon bikes that come with lots of mounts. So they'll have like hidden fender mounts or hidden rack mounts or something. Or they're designed to take bike packing bags. So that adds some versatility. So that's great. Mm-hmm. What so are the rest might... of your questions? <laughs> well, I think that kind of almost sort of does cover it. And, I, you know, I'd stand by the... You know, for me, the whole point of gravel is that I can get those prolonged rides that are good for your fitness that I would have got through road riding, you know, like a good sort of three, four, five hour solid ride. But I can do it away from traffic. I can do it on yeah. more interest. I find it more interesting than road, road cycling, if I'm brutally honest. Um, on the sort of the flip side, you know, you do see the comments, oh, it's just a marketing thing. Oh, they just want to sell more bikes. And I'm going to stick up for the bike industry for a minute. They do want to sell more bikes. They want to sell more bikes. Because they are the bike industry. They're companies. (laughs) I'm not going to go on it because I I have ranted about this in the past. But if you complain about companies trying to sell more products, you know, look at your employer. I'm sure, you know, whoever employs you probably wants to sell more of their product because it makes more money. It ensures jobs in their company and their shareholders. Nobody's making you buy. Just don't buy it. It, I I think it's great that we have Mm. the choices. I do wonder if there's... There's a bit of a sort of pendulum thing that goes on. Mm-hmm. And I know you've said before that this is something that happened in mountain bikes, didn't it? Yeah. we In mountain bikes, say, five, six years ago, and, you know, slightly early maybe as well, but we saw the growth of fat bikes, which suddenly burst onto the scene as this incredible way to go and explore new territory. Yeah. All this sort of stuff. And they had big four, five-inch wide tires, weighed an absolute ton, Um and then we sort of saw that the plus bike came around with three, three, you know, three point five, whatever, three point eight tires, big, big chunky tires. There was a load of bikes came. They made a lot of noise. And again, it was an industry-led thing. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and we did some testing. And you know, if you ask Seb, um, one of our tech guys, he's a big fan of the plus bike in the right application. 
But again, save for a few specific places, I feel that, I mean, fat, when did you last buy a fat bike? I can't remember last time we had it in the office. I think all the people that were going to buy a fat bike have now done it. Yeah, and it's just a big fat tire on... Yeah, frankly, on a primitive bike, primitive bike. So it's not going to die. So it's still they yeah. still exist. But but that influence is still around because isn't it the case that generally in mountain biking people are probably riding slightly bigger tires on their trail bikes than they were a few years ago? Exactly. So you've had fat, then plus came along. They're full size on hardtails, and now I'd say your average tire is two four to two point six. Whereas before it was. 2.3, yeah. 2.2. So it's a small but meaningful difference. Yeah. So we've seen, you know, this this funny thing come in with your fat bikes and your plus bikes and your regular bikes, and then they've kind of converged on wheel tires. And that's for a number of reasons, you know, tire weight, particularly tire weight, I'd say, has been played a big influence in that. How does that then work on the road side of things? Well, I think with gravel, we might see the same thing because there's been this explosion of gravel bike. Everyone's launched a gravel mm. bike, uh, and some of them are quite extreme there's obviously quite a few of them uh designed around 650b tires or they'll do both 650b and 700 size the reason for running a 650 is that you can the diameter of a 650 by 47 47 or something is very similar to a skinnier 700 Mm -hmm. so as long as you've got the width there you can run a much faster tire and you can generally get away with that width if it's if the rim's further back towards the dropouts yeah i mean the tires are relatively tall yeah obviously it doesn't work in all frames yeah but there's quite a bit of leeway there um and yes there's been a big explosion in those bikes and taking really quite large tires and there's people like you know what's there was that one launch recently that the the open wide which takes it's like mountain bike tires on a drop bar gravel bike yeah but then actually the reality is that most of us probably don't want to run like a 50 millimeter tire on Mm. a gravel bikes because if you're taking advantage of that versatility thing and you want to be able to ride a bit on the road Mm -hmm. a bit on gravel fire road bit of single track you maybe want something that's more like i don't know 40 millimeters so i reckon that for most of us the ideal kind of do everything swiss army knife bike is probably somewhere in the middle Mm -hmm. but the fact is we've got the choice now which is nice yeah and there are endurance bikes have kind of edged upwards in tire size so battery bay i was talking about I've just put 32 mil tires on okay. it, but it's got room for, I think, maybe 35s, maybe even a bit bigger. I'm not yeah. sure. Um, and then, yeah, a huge number of endurance bikes will go up to around a 38, mm-hmm. which in reality is a very versatile tire. You can ride that on most gravel surfaces, type yeah. surfaces. And if you look at, you know, five years ago, if you said you were going to be riding your versatile all day bike with a 38. Yeah, it'd be crazy. Yeah. But you can. I mean, I've the 32s that I've put on the Roubaix, uh, the new Conti GP5000 tubular. So that's a slick tyre. It's, it's a road tyre. Mm-hmm. But they've got that extra width that means that they're not terrifying if you're mm-hmm. off-road. So but you can it, get away with that little fine dirt road or yeah, track. Yeah, saying that I did fall over. But leaving that aside, on the other hand, on tarmac, they roll pretty... You're not really going to notice the difference between a 32 and a 28 mm-hmm. slick tyre. They're both going to roll really quickly on tarmac. You can ride everywhere on the road and not be at a big disadvantage mm-hmm. in that. So. Okay. Yeah. Next up, then, uh, this is a story that you wrote about on Bike Radar recently. So, if this interests you, you can have a Google. You can, if you Google, we'll put a link in the description. We'll put a link as well. We'll help you out. Don't <laughs> Google. Um, ABS. Yeah. So <laughs> cool. It, or well, it's either cool or tragic. I'm not sure which. ABS for bikes. Now, uh, ABS as a concept for bicycles has been around for a while. Mm-hmm. Um, there are already 
two systems on the market as far as I'm aware. There's a Bosch one and a Blue Brake system, which okay. is on found on Bulls e-bikes. And the Bosch system is also found on e-bikes. So the story that I wrote was a patent filed by Shimano for an ABS system, which I found and read through, which was really fun. Oh, great reading. Patent language is just a beautiful, beautiful <laughs> thing. But it's really interesting that a company like Shimano is working on ABS. Now, huge caveat, it does appear that the focus is e-bikes. The diagrams mm -hmm. that they're using in their patent are of e-bikes, but the patent does include a list of essentially all types of bikes, including okay. road, mountain, cyclocross. Um, and it is very interesting because ABS has the potential to make some types of bike much more beginner-friendly in particular. Should we just say what ABS is? Yeah, so ABS is what you've got on every modern car. It's anti-lock braking. It's a system that essentially prevents skidding when you slam your brakes on. And the way that it does that is it monitors the speed of your wheels, mm -hmm. essentially. And if there's a discrepancy between the speed of your wheels, it intervenes and modulates the braking. And it does that in pretty well all systems using some combination of valves and a pump. So it's it's a, a proper like hydraulic system mm -hmm. that can operate your brakes independently of what you are doing with the brake lever. Okay. So you're probably thinking, why the hell would I want that on a bicycle? Unnecessary complication. And the chances are, if you're thinking that, then this is not a system for mm -hmm. you. But for the uninitiated who just, we, we're all about bikes being inclusive. Yeah. For people who want to just ride their bike to work as safely as possible. Not into it for the sport. Yeah, not necessarily into it for the sport, They want, but they probably want to ride in all weathers. If we're thinking about that kind of idealised European model of cycling where everyone in Amsterdam or Copenhagen rides a bicycle mm -hmm. so to get to work. Or somewhere whatever. over the channel. Yes, yeah, yeah, in Europe. <laughs> um, then it makes a certain amount of sense. There is the obvious issue that existing systems are fairly heavy yeah. and ABS needs a power source, so it is an obvious match for e-bikes. It's a less obvious match for a conventional bicycle, but that's not to say that down the line mm -hmm. it's not impossible. And I guess that's the point of Shimano having these patents is that it's, I guess, almost sticking their foot in the door for future stuff down the line so they protect themselves and they protect their investment. Yeah, in the, I mean, I'm not a it. patent lawyer and I know that there's a lot of shenanigans that go on in patents mm. because of people trying to block other companies from doing things. I've no idea what's going on at that level, but it's significant that a company like Shimano would do this yeah. because when Shimano decides to embrace a technology, they tend to like do the industry it. Follows, they right. do it properly and they tend to have a huge influence across the industry. Yeah. There's no question. Okay. So yeah, it'd be interesting to see what happens. I think one thing we should say is that ABS is essentially totally impractical for all forms of off-road cycling. Yeah. Because it does not handle like loose surfaces as well. Mm -hmm. um, and if you're riding on gravel or dirt or mud, ABS can actually make your stopping distances longer mm -hmm. and could technically make you less safe. But the ideal scenario for ABS is like a commuter bike. Somebody, yeah. somebody slams their brakes on in front of you, you slam your brake on, on a conventional bike, an inexperienced cyclist is going to go over the bars when they do that. Or skid and whatever. Or, or skid, whereas on an ABS-equipped bike, you could potentially brake really hard and maybe steer around the obstacle, yeah. avoid a crash, and that's the ideal. There was actually a tiny, probably rubbish anecdote. Back when I was a kid, a friend of mine had a B1 mountain bike. Uh, this was in the days of V-brakes. 
and there was like an, this weird inline cartridge in his front V-brake cable, yeah. which I imagine you... I, I didn't take it to bits, but I think the cable from the lever was pulled and then it pulled the end of this cartridge and then another bit of cable then pulled the brake and in the middle of this cartridge was some sort of slightly springy material, which in theory is there to stop you from locking the front wheel and going over the bars. I'm sure if if someone out there actually knows how it works. It didn't work very well. I tried it. Um, do let me know how wrong I am in the comments. But it's not... I, I think Shimano's de- uh, system is probably far it's more developed. Probably than, a little bit better than that. Uh, well, actually, so. no. We do know a bit about what their system might involve because okay. the patent mentions um, monitoring the sort of... the over- He uses these weird phrases like monitoring the travelling environment oh, yeah. um, on a bicycle. So yeah, well, it's it's not totally straightforward on a two-wheeled vehicle. There are different ways you can do it because if you just compare wheel speeds, that's not necessarily the best way to do it. If you were also monitoring like the absolute speed relative to the ground around you, that might be more useful. And the Shimano patent actually makes reference to LiDAR, which mm-hmm. is like a laser-based system that's used by um, like self-driving cars yeah. and things. It mentions GPS, which is maybe a less obvious one because GPS isn't accurate enough for that kind of like real-time stuff. Mm-hmm. But I did have this theory, the GPS thing. So there are certain very high-end cars, I know Rolls-Royce did this, where GPS data is used to anticipate the roads. So mm-hmm. like the car will know when there's a hill coming, and that information is used to inform gear changes in the automatic gearbox. Hmm. So it could be that Shimano has some crazy idea about synthesizing yeah. data together to do clever things. I don't know. But there are lots of interesting ways they could approach it. Maybe they're just throwing everything at the wall, see what sticks. Or maybe they are going to do something yeah. mad. Well, maybe in a few years' time, we'll I'll, find out. I'll have a Rolls-Royce. And you'll have a Rolls-Royce. <laughs> One thing is for sure, though, in a few years' time, I won't be participating in eSports, which is, I think, our final little, like, crystal ball, what's happening in road cycling? Because everyone and their dog seems to be on Zwift or I don't know what the rest of them are. Yeah. Sufferfest, whatever. So, I, I don't get it. Sorry. I, I mean, we're not... We don't have a very representative sample of people here because neither of us does Swift. Mm. Or I totally recognise the value of things like Swift as a training tool, mm-hmm. and I can totally see why you'd want to gamify that experience because it makes it less boring. Because back in the day when I cared about that sort of thing, I did is terrible. Yeah, I did like intervals on rollers with you know just myself, mm-hmm. and it, oh Christ, it was so yeah. boring, just unpleasant, uncomfortable. And yeah, if you gamify that, that's got to be more fun. But there is a big difference for me between gamifying that mm-hmm. and me wanting to watch other people do it. And that's yeah. where I struggle with esports. Okay. So watching other people effectively ride a stationary bike. Yeah. I'm just never going to do that. Uh, what, the Zwift World Championships recently? Obviously, big doping scandal. Uh, uh, not doping. Oh, sorry, no. e-doping? Mm, this is quite a complicated story. Okay. I kind of... Ended up kind of thinking the guy was rather poorly treated by British cycling. That's really? a separate Okay, issue. we'll, yeah, we'll yeah. talk about that in another podcast. Yeah, um, no, that's an interesting topic. It wasn't as clear-cut as uh, the original media coverage, okay. I think, made out. Yeah. Um, he got a lot of media coverage as well. It did, yeah. I mean, his YouTube channel's blown up. <laughs> Cameron Jeffers, if you're curious. Yeah? Okay. Yeah, it, I, I do think it's odd to sort of... And I guess I don't get watching, like, is it Fortnite? Is that the computer game the kids play these days? 
I presume people watch that. Yeah, I know it's a big game. Yeah. But, you yeah, just sound like enough. a couple of old pensioners. We do, yeah. Given that kids I, you know, these I, days. Watch, I watch much of the day still. So. Yeah, but people will watch any competitive activity, won't they? That's the yeah. So do you think that we're going to see more in terms of um, not the participation element of Zwift, but the uh, spectator in the spectatorness of electronic cycling sports? I suspect we're going to. I won't be one of the people watching it. <laughs> Put it that way. <laughs> I think that's a fair point to to end this bit on. Do we have a quick... We were doing that thing where we were chatting about what we've been up to. Yeah. Should we do what that? have you been up to, Tom? <laughs> what have I been up to? Um, I've been... Um, I had a really good day out, actually, the other day. I've been riding my long-term bike for MBUK recently a bit because... Uh, it's come to the end of our year with long term. I had a specialized stump jumper Evo, which is a very uh, long geometried mountain bike that's very well suited, I've discovered, to very steep tracks. But I can appreciate how good the bike is, but I can also appreciate where it didn't really work for me. However, I did a, a day out in the Brecon Beacons um, in some utterly horrific weather um, with YMTB, who are based in the Forest of Dean. Nice days guiding and uplifting. Thoroughly recommend that. It was really good fun. Um, I've been getting myself, so I, I did a thing in Africa, I did a marathon race, so I've been riding a lot of cross-country bikes, got the race out of the way, and was like, right, I'm going to ride fun bikes for a few weeks, so steep, off-piste, big trail bikes, because the next bit of work I've got to do is really interesting from a testing point of view, um, and really valuable in terms of, I think, for um, in terms of the content we can get out of it, but I'm doing a 500-pound mountain bike test for MBUK and for Bike Radar. Um, it's probably not my bread and butter of sort of the fun I would have at the weekend, but I think it's going to be really interesting. So for these couple of weeks, I've been riding fun bikes. That's always good, isn't it? It is always good. Yeah. Um, you've been riding through floods, I hear. Yeah, I tried to ride through a flood on the Bay, Didn't work. <laughs> Fell over. Put my feet in the flood. Good. Got Should cold feet. Fun, but can say, bit of product testing here, I was wearing Gore-Tex overshoes and yeah. my feet got totally soaked because obviously water had got in everywhere. But I wasn't cold. Yeah. So that was nice. Okay. Um, yeah, I was, uh, I've been riding that Roubaix quite a bit, loving mm-hmm. that. Um, looking forward to testing some interesting gravel bikes. I'm going to get the mid-range Canyon Grail, so the oh, cheapest yeah. carbon Canyon Grail. So you still get the wacky handlebars. Hoverbar. Hoverbar. Hover Hoverbar. Hover yeah, so, um, and I think it's two grand with, I can't remember if it's a 105 or Altegra. Okay. But it should be a very nice bike. Yeah. And I think an interesting one because it kind of sits right in the middle. Because we ran, when the Canyon Grail launched, mm-hmm. Jack went out to the... Yeah, uh, south of France, thing. wasn't it? Yeah, it was and, and he rode the well. top-end model, so we've reported on that a bit. We haven't actually talked very much about the mid-level carbon one. We talked a lot about the alloy one, which was our okay. kind of bike of the year winner. Mm-hmm. Um, but not, yeah, I think it would be a really interesting bike. I think, I'm looking forward to spending some time in that. I think low- and mid-end bikes actually are... Almost more interesting than the top-end ones. Because... From a reviewer's point of view, they are, because there's more to talk about mm. sort of contextually, because the problem is if you're talking about like a six-grand bike, it's going to be good. Like it there aren't any yeah. bad six-grand bikes. There are bad value for money, six mm-hmm. by all of them, but there aren't any that are actually genuinely yeah. bad. I'm not saying there are any... I mean, if you're spending two grand, there aren't it's really many good. bad bikes, but there are significant compromises on yeah. different aspects and of different the companies will have taken different compromises. Yeah, absolutely. It's after my 500-pound bike test, the one I'm doing after that is a entry-level carbon hardtail XC race bike test, if that's a bit wordy. So basically, there's four XC hardtails, all priced at 2,250 to 2,500 pounds, 
with carbon frames um, is what sort of like the benchmark's been. Yeah. So it's the entry level Epic, for example. There's a Trek, uh, I want to say Pro Caliber, uh, Cube C62 Reaction, I think it's called, something like that. And again, like, it, oh, and hopefully, actually, the Mondraka Chrono, um, which would be a really interesting bike. And yeah, at that point, you know, some of the bikes are getting carbon wheels, some of them are getting, mm. you know, whether it's an XT drivetrain or, a, you know, there's a real mix of specs. And obviously, some companies spent the money on the wheels, some have spent it on drivetrains, some have spent it on forks. And You get some pretty juicy frames at that level, don't you? Because some of them, they, they'll give yeah. you like a really nice carbon frame, but with kind of a not great component Specialized spec. Epic, classic. Yeah, I was going to say the Epic. You, that's a properly light frame, isn't it? Well, the S-Works Epic is... Um, 750 grams the non-s-works which is the, the 11 the fact m11 whatever it's called the one you get on the bottom three bikes in the range i think it's still a sub kilo frame and i mean that it, seems crazy doesn't brilliant. it on a two grand ish yeah bike and it, but it comes with sram's sx eagle this new yeah completely entry level few hundred quid but group set. that is still 12 speed isn't still it still 12 speed yeah and the upgrade potential of a bike like that is obviously massive because down the line, you're going to upgrade the fork and the shock on that potentially yeah. and have an amazing bike. Yeah. So I think it's going to be really interesting. I've got a sneaking suspicion if the Canyon of Asphalt 4 arrives, I'm not going to say it's definitely got carbon wheels because it probably doesn't. But, the, you know, for example, the carbons, it, the, the, the entry-level Canyon or the 2,000-and-something pound Canyon, banging value for money, Yeah. as you'd expect. So I think it's going to be a really interesting test. I look forward to that. So, yeah, I think that probably brings it to a close. Uh, that was the Bike Radar podcast. Don't forget, like, subscribe. If you're watching this on YouTube, click the little bell icon, then you'll get notifications for all of Bike Radar's videos. Don't forget to head to you know all the usual podcast providers, Spotify, iTunes. I don't know the names of any more of them, but go to all of those, subscribe, keep listening, leave comments. Definitely leave comments. We'd love to hear some feedback on these podcasts. So particularly if you're on YouTube, write a comment, but not an abusive one. Thanks. Thank you for listening to the Bike Radar podcast. If you want any more information on what we've been talking about or more news and views on cycling, check out bikeradar.com. Bye.